Can you remember a time in your life whenever you had to make an important decision and you wanted to know what God's will was for your life? I'm sure you have at some point. If you, if you would call yourself a follower of Christ, then maybe you reached a crossroad at one point or another where you thought, which way, which way should I go? Maybe you have an important decision coming up and you want to know what God's will is for your life. Does that sound like you? Maybe it's a, a decision about a job or a relationship or a possible move or maybe a decision with kids or, or school or family or a business decision, maybe whether or not to make a big purchase or not. The amount of decisions we make in life are endless, right? Small and big. So how can you know what God's will is for your life? How can we be certain that we're going to make the right decision? I'm sure you've asked yourself that question now and again. And here's the thing. I think sometimes we overcomplicate things. I think sometimes we make things more difficult than they have to be. Thinking about these things reminds me of a book that came out in 2014 by Kevin DeYoung, who's a pastor in Michigan, and now he's in a different state. But he used to be really close to uh, Michigan State University, and he had a lot of college students that would come to him and ask these kind of questions like, what about this relationship? What about this job? Like, what a, where should I move to? What should I do? And he wrote a, a book, a kind of a short book. It's called Just Do Something. And then the subtitle was A Liberating Approach to Finding God's Will. A very helpful book. The alternative title that's also on the cover of the book says, How to Make a Decision Without Dreams, Visions, Fleeces, Impressions, Open Doors, Random Bible Verses, Casting Lots, Liver Shivers, Writing in the Sky, etc. <laughs> Which is a long title for a book, right? I actually remember I, I, ran, I uh, heard him speak at a pastor's conference, and I told him how I appreciated this book that he had written. And I said, I do have one question, though. What's a liver shiver? And he just laughed, and he never told me the answer to that. <laughs> I guess you have to read the book. You know, I, we, today we're going to look at this passage of Scripture, and there's a lot of answers to these kind of questions in this passage of Scripture. After Jesus assembled his disciples together for one last time, after his resurrection, he gave them some final instructions. And then he gathered them together on the hill, it says, and then he ascended into heaven. And he left them. He left them looking into the sky. If you remember last week, two men in white appeared and said, why do you stand here looking in the sky? Because the one you saw rise up to heaven, he's going to come again. And the disciples, they're like, okay, well, what do we do now, right? Think about where they're living. and the time, They're living in this weird in-between time when Jesus is gone, and he said he was going to send a helper, the promised Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit had not yet come. And so they're left with this, okay, what now? So put yourself in their shoes for a minute. I'm sure if you were in their shoes, you're going to be filled with a lot of anxiety, a lot of uncertainty, maybe some fear, a lot of questions, right? In a matter of a few days, just think about the roller coaster ride of emotions that these guys had gone on and these ladies have been on too. They went from mourning the loss of their friend and teacher to three days later rejoicing that he's alive and he's their savior and king and he's the Messiah. And then all of a sudden, they're learning all this new stuff. They had known the scriptures, but now they're learning how all of the scriptures point towards Jesus as being the Messiah. And then all of a sudden, he disappears again, right? And they're left scratching their heads, looking up into heaven, wondering, okay, what now? What should we do? Which way should we go? What's God's will? 
for our lives. What we see in our passage today is a helpful model for how we should think about God's will and how we can make decisions in our life. And just to summarize in a nutshell, here's what we need to do. Trust in the Lord when you don't know the exact next step. Continue in what his revealed will is. Pray, gather information, and make a decision. So when you know God's will, you know that God has revealed his will. Trust in him for the next step. Go to him in prayer. Gather information. Have a multitude of advisors, Proverbs says, and then make a decision. So let's look at God's word together. It says they were gathered. Uh, they had got these final instructions from Jesus in Luke 22, 49, 24, 49. He said, stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And then in Acts 1-4, they were told to wait for the promise of the Father. When it comes to making decisions, there's always waiting involved, isn't there? And I feel like there's always something about waiting whenever we have to make a decision. And there's uncertainties, there's waiting. But as a Christian, we look at life a little differently because of the resurrection of Jesus. We know that now life has meaning. And so even though we don't know exactly what's going to happen in life, we know that in the end, God wins. And we can trust our king along the way. The disciples, they returned to Jerusalem to the room that they were familiar with. They, went back. they didn't go someplace new. They didn't just start wandering around. They went back, it says, to the upper room. This could have been the room where Jesus had his final meal with his disciples. Luke is not exactly clear, and if this is the exact same room, it is probably likely that it's the same room, though, that the disciples were in between the time of Jesus' death and resurrection when they were in complete fear, when they were afraid for their own lives, afraid that they were going to be found out, afraid of the Jews that said the Jewish leaders, they were hiding in the upper room. It's probably the room they went back to because that was the room that they were familiar with, and it had a, a significance in their life. So it became this meeting place. And if you look at verse 12, it says, They returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, about a Sabbath day's journey, about three-quarters of a mile away. And when they entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. And then it says that he lists the people that were together, Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas the son of James. They, all these with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. And so he lists the people to show that they are all together, all of them except for G Judas. And then also included, he put the, um, the women who are also the disciples of Jesus and Jesus' mother and Jesus' brothers. And I think it's highly significant here that he mentions Jesus' brothers that were there in the upper room with them. Because... Throughout Jesus' public life and ministry, throughout the Gospels, Jesus' brothers didn't believe him. They were, they were the people that, like, they thought he was crazy. They even said that in Mark 3.21. They said that they thought Jesus was out of his mind. And the Apostle John says that not even his brothers believed in him. But now, what do we see here? We see that the brothers of Jesus are with, him, with the disciples in the upper room. And so these people who have, were the closest to Jesus all throughout his life, all of a sudden now, they're convinced, along with the disciples, they're convinced that Jesus is the real deal, that he is the Messiah because of the resurrection. 
Nothing else changed their minds except seeing him rise from the grave again. And I think that's one, I've said this before, I think it's one of the most convincing arguments for the resurrection of Jesus is his very own family who said he was crazy for three years for his teaching, for claiming who he claimed to be, and now they see he actually rose from the grave and they believe. So this goes to show you that God can reach anyone. No matter how resistant they seem, no matter how many supposedly intellectual barriers they put up to the lordship of, of God, God can reach anybody. And so here they are, they're all gathered together, and they're in this upper room, and all these people, it says they were unified. They were, had one accord. They were single-minded. They were together as one. They all believed that Jesus rose from the grave, that Jesus was the Messiah. They all believed that his resurrection meant everything. It changed their lives. They believed that this and this faith, this common faith in the resurrection of Jesus is what held them together in unity. It's what unified them together. And it says they were devoted in prayer. They were constant in prayer, constantly spending time in prayer. They weren't just hanging out, playing board games, eating potato chips. They were devoted to prayer. They were devoted to the word of God. It says they were constantly persistent in prayer. Prayer was not a last resort because they didn't know what was coming. It was the thing they did because they were positive of what was coming. They knew the Holy Spirit was coming, and so they prayed to the Lord. And they prayed the way Jesus taught them to pray, the way Jesus modeled prayer. Prayer is not something, not a tool that we use to get our own way with God. It's the way to align our will with God's will. And so they probably prayed in the same way that Jesus prayed to the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but your will be done. We need to be a people who pray. We need to be a church that prays. We need to be praying together with other believers. We need to be constant in prayer. They prayed without the Holy Spirit. And we have the Holy Spirit to help us in our prayers, Scripture tells us. And so here they are. They're praying. They're united in prayer. They're united in prayer together with other believers. And throughout Scripture, whenever it talks about waiting, every time Scripture mentions waiting, it assumes that there's prayer involved in waiting. And I think that's important, that sometimes we think we're just waiting on our own, doing our own thing, and then just thinking about different things or going to different, at, going to different um, advice columns or Googling different answers, when in reality, what we should be doing is spending that time in prayer and recognizing that we have the Holy Spirit that helps us in our prayers. And so look at the, verse 15. It says, in those days... Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. So get this. We know that there, there were 10 days between the, resurrect, between the ascension of Jesus and the sending of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. They didn't know there were 10 days, right? They went to the Lord in prayer, in their minds, an indefinite amount of time because they didn't know when the Holy Spirit was going to be coming. They didn't know when, everything was, when Acts 2 was coming, right? They just went to the Lord in prayer. And I think it's telling as well that it's Peter is the one who stands up and begins to address the crowd. Peter is the one who denied Jesus and who Jesus um, put him back into ministry. 
he takes this leadership role and he stands up in front of the 120 people and he talks about the word of the Lord. So while they were praying, they were searching the scriptures. While they were praying, they were probably singing psalms, singing the songs that they knew and praying to the Lord together. And Peter is the one who puts it all together and says, hey, this is all part of God's plan. In fact, he says, this had to happen. In verse 16, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Jesus. And so you love this because he's basically saying, hey, look, we know that God is in control. Like the fact that Judas did this, it wasn't like a, it wasn't like God was like, oh my goodness, I can't believe Judas did this, you know? And it wasn't like that Jesus was caught off guard by what Judas did. The fact that he was betrayed. Remember, Jesus had been saying, no one takes my life from me, I lay it down on my own. He's the one who told the disciples, we're going to go to Jerusalem and I will be handed over. He knew that Judas was going to betray him. It wasn't like God was caught off guard. God did not lose control. Nothing gets out of control with God. Judas did betray Jesus, but Jesus went to the cross willingly. And see, the thing in Scripture is God's sovereignty, which we talk about, God's sovereignty in the Bible is never pitted against human responsibility. It's never, they're never at odds. Judas was still responsible for his sins, just as we are. We should never say, God is tempting me. We should never say, well, God, you're the one who put me in this position. We should never blame God for our sins. Because like that song we sang, we are rebels at heart. Judas was one of them. It says in verse 17, he was there from the beginning. He was one of the 12. In fact, he had kind of a position among the 12. He was the treasurer. He held the money purse. And so he had a position of responsibility. And he was there with everybody else. He had a, a position of ministry there. And so let's let this be a warning. You look at the life of Judas and recognize that you cannot hide from God. You can't hide your sin. Your sins will eventually be found out. Judas was the ultimate backstabber. He was there with Jesus, but then he betrayed his Lord and friend for 30 pieces of silver. We wonder, remember, he, he, he looked for a way that could hand Jesus over. He went to the authorities. The authorities went to him. The authorities used him, but he was getting money for this. And so he did something for, for money. It's amazing how many times money can just be this wedge in our life, a wedge that separates us from God. And he made a decision because he was trying to make some money. Yes, it says that the devil entered him and prompted him, but he took this money and he betrayed Jesus. And remember, after the fact, he, re he looked at this money and realized what he had done. And he tried to give it back to the religious leaders. And they're like, ha, 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 no, no, that's, that's your money. That's blood money. We're not putting that back in the church treasury. And so they knew it was, it was tainted. It was horrible. And he got upset, and he threw the money into the temple. He didn't want it. They didn't want it. He just threw it in and took off. And then it says in Scripture that he went and committed suicide. And they picked up the money. They're like, well, what do we do with this? This is, you know, they understood what they had done. And so they took that money, and they bought a field, it says. And that way, in Scripture, it says that they called that the field of blood. They, and they ended up using that field for a burial place for um, criminals or other people that, that couldn't be buried with, with other people. 
And that whole story is uh, recorded there in verses 18 and 19. And Luke put it in parentheses to show that, like, this this is kind of a flashback. That's why he put it in parentheses to show, like, this is what happened, just to remember here. And he describes the horribleness of what happened to, to Judas's body, that he was, he was hung. Some people think, if you look at Matthew, the account of the death of Judas, one of them says he hung himself. The other says, he, he says right here, he fell headlong and his intestines burst out, which is a disgusting picture, right? A picture that shows the destructiveness of sin. I think you could easily reconcile those two stories. I mean, he hung himself, and then he... The rope, the branch broke, the rope wore out, it fell down. I mean, he's writing this later. The body probably decomposed. I mean, but but a horrible picture of what happened to Judas because of the sin that he gave himself over to. Death and destruction await those who die in sin. And it's a warning of of what happens if we continue down the sinful, destructive cell, down our sinful, destructive ways. So Luke reminds us of the story. But remember what Peter said. He says, you know, it's okay because Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David. I mean, that's a lot of words, but you think about this. Peter was really on to something here. Like Peter, this is, look at these two things about what Peter said, really big things about his statement here. First of all, he said that Scripture had to be fulfilled. It had to happen this way. This shows that Peter had confidence in the accuracy and the reliability of Scripture and in the prophetic nature of the Old Testament. If it's in Scripture, then we can trust that it's true and that it's accurate, even today. So do not doubt God's Scripture. Do not doubt the plain reading of Scripture. Oftentimes, the devil will do the same thing he's done since the very beginning and twist God's Word. He'll twist God's Word and say things like, did God really say? I mean, you can plainly read Scripture in so many issues, and people will twisted as plain as day did God really say you knit me together in my mother's womb yes he did and no matter no matter how many different ways that Satan tries to twist it we know that life in a mother's womb is not potential life but it's life with potential and we know from scripture that every person is made in the image of God and that every human being has value and worth Scripture is accurate. Scripture is trustworthy. And Scripture, as Peter says here, it came from the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David. So this is really deep. Think about this. What he's doing is he's talking about, and specifically he's quoting Psalm 69 and Psalms 109 to be exact. And he is saying that it was the Holy Spirit who led King David to write these songs and to keep them recorded and keep them preserved as Scripture until their time He's saying that the Holy Spirit is the one who led David to write those. So he knows that David wrote more than the Psalms that we have in the Bible, but these were recorded as Scripture because these were written by the Holy Spirit, right, telling him to write it, leading him to write it. And not only did the Holy Spirit inspire David to write those as Scripture, but now the Holy Spirit is speaking to Peter and the apostles in Acts chapter 1, revealing God's will through the Holy Spirit-inspired Scriptures. It's crazy to think about that. I mean that, and now today we read Acts chapter 1, and the Holy Spirit is still active, revealing God through the Holy Scriptures today. Isn't that amazing? Peter explained later on when he's writing um, 2 Peter, his letter, 
the second letter he wrote, chapter 1, verse 21, he says, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So in other words, yes, men wrote the Bible, but it was the Holy Spirit who inspired them. So it's actually what B.B. Warfield called the concursive nature of Scripture. That is, is that God wrote it and human beings wrote it. They wrote together. That's what concursive means. And so, yeah, whenever you read Scripture, there's unique grammar and language. That's why we know that Luke and Acts were written by Luke. I mean, it looks just the same. It's written the same. They're, the same words are repeated because, and then you look at Matthew written from more of a Jewish perspective. You look at Luke written more from a, a Gentile perspective. So they all had their experiences, but they all wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And now if we want to, and we know that God speaks through his word. And so if you want to hear God speak, read God's word. It's amazing how many people say, I want to hear from you, God. And while their Bible sits closed on the table, open your Bible and read God's word and you will hear from God. Because when scripture speaks, God speaks. And we know that God preserves his word. God speaks through his word. And even today, God, as you're reading God's word, the Holy Spirit will teach you. And so as the disciples are discerning the will of the Lord, they're in scripture, they're praying, and the Holy Spirit is revealing to them. And he says, citing Psalms 69, 25, and 109, 8, he cites these, these two applications. Basically, King David wrote these because he was betrayed by a good friend. And that's kind of what he's referencing here. And this quote-unquote friend, rejected the friendship and blessing of King David. So he's saying, like, how much more is the fact that Judas also had the friendship and blessing of King Jesus, and yet he rejected him? Judas had committed this horrible sin, but God used that sin sinlessly to bring about his will and his purpose. And so as they were in prayer together, he quotes this, verse 20, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So the first psalm, he's basically saying uh, his Judas's family tree, his family line, the household of Judas ended with him. And so that's what that first part means, is there's, there's no, going to be nothing more of Judas. And then the second part is, is let another take his office. In other words, Peter is saying we need to fill the office of apostle that Judas vacated because of what Judas did. You see, Jesus had taught that there was a special plan for the 12. That's why he chose 12 disciples. This is because this is a reflection of the 12 tribes of Israel. In Matthew 19, 28, Jesus said, Truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon the 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And so there's... Um, God was doing a new thing, creating a new people. And so he chose a new 12 instead of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so the office that Peter's referring to was the office of apostleship. Sometimes we, we, especially when we're preaching through the Gospels, we'll use apostle and disciple interchangeably. But as you can see here, there were going to be, there needed to be 12 apostles, even though there were 120 disciples at the very beginning. And they said, well, in order to be an apostle then, they had some requirements. First of all, this man that they were going to choose had to be with them from the beginning, from the baptism of John. That means from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. Secondly, this man had to be an eyewitness to the resurrection. He couldn't have just heard about it secondhand. Even if he was from the beginning, he had to be this eyewitness. 
And thirdly, he had to be chosen by God. And so what we see here from the very beginning of Christianity is it's based on a historical fact, the historical fact of the resurrection. You know, this could have been easily overlooked. Peter could have just said, hey, you know what? We lost one, but we have 11. We're good. You know, we're going to have the Holy Spirit. We're good, right? But he heard, he remembered the teaching of Jesus. He looked into the word and said, we need to fill this slot. We need to fill this office that Judas vacated. And so this is how they decided. They, they had those requirements, which make total sense, and they chose two qualified men to be leaders. And what they probably did was they probably put both men's name on a rock, and they put it in a bag, and then they shook it up, and they drew one out. You see, in the Old Testament times, a lot of decisions were made in this way. It was called casting lots. Um, it's in Leviticus chapter 16, verses 8 through 10. Casting lots or, or uh, Urim and Thummim is what they called it. So the decision maker would have an Urim and a Thummim, and they would say, this one is this, this one is that, A or B, one or two, shake it up, pull one out, and that's what they would do. Because it says in Proverbs 16.33, the, ca- the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. And so this is an acknowledgement that God is in complete control. They put forward two capable men. They put forward two men who fulfilled all of these requirements, that these men have been there from the beginning. They were trustworthy. They had seen the resurrection. And now, now they're saying, oh, God, we want you to make this final decision. And a couple of things about this is that, first of all, the office of apostleship now, as you'll see, is closed. There's no new apostles. Some people today might assign themselves a title of apostle or whatever, but when it, when it comes to the office that Peter is saying, he didn't pick both of them, right? He didn't leave it at 11. He didn't pick both. He said, we need to have this apostle. And you can see this later on. In Acts chapter 12, when James, the son of Zebedee, was killed, they didn't replace him. Now, a lot of people talk about, okay, where do you put Paul then? Um, and that's a whole other sermon, it's a whole other discussion, which we can talk about later. Because some people say, well, then how do you, where do you put Paul in that situation who called himself an apostle? And Paul even said, and by the way, he also said, like, um, re- referring to himself as one untimely born when he compared himself to the other apostles. So I think in the fact that Jesus appeared to him um, on the road to Damascus. So like I said, that's a whole other discussion. I think for... For what we see, what Peter's talking about here is he's trying to fulfill what Jesus told them was going to happen, and he's trying to search God's will for the role of apostle, the people who are with Jesus from the beginning, from the beginning. And it's interesting, too. So you notice who didn't, who wasn't on that list? It wasn't Jesus's brothers. I always thought about that, too. Like, why didn't they, James, one of Jesus's brothers, ended up being one of the leaders of, this, of the church in Jerusalem? Well, why wasn't he chosen to be the apostle? You would think it would have been him, right? Or Jesus' oldest brother, right? And it's also funny. Did you know Jesus had a brother named Judas? How do you think Jesus felt about him growing up? You know? know? But the most important thing is that Christianity is based on that historical fact. The historical fact that Christ rose from the grave. It's the most important thing. It's the most foundational thing. So do you believe that Jesus rose from the grave? To be a Christian means you believe that he died for your sins and he rose again and he's living today. And that because he rose from the grave, someday after we die, 
we are going to be resurrected to eternal life. And so where does that leave us? What can we learn from this about making decisions? Well, first of all, I, w- I want to say that I think it's important that we gather together, right? It's important that we're together. There's something to be said about how they all gathered together in prayer. They didn't go their separate ways at this time. They know they needed one another. If you're a Christian, you know the Christian life is not meant to be lived alone. You can't do it on your own. You need your brothers and sisters in Christ to be praying for you, to be lifting you up. We need one another. That's why it says in Hebrews that we should not neglect to meet together as some are in the habit of doing, but we should encourage each other all the more until as you see the day approaching. And so recognize that we can be an encouragement to one another. You need encouragement. You need to encourage others as well. You are called, if you're a Christian, you are called to be a part of a community of believers. And this goes to the second part here is that we all um, need to be in one accord. They gather together in prayer and it says they were of one accord of one mind or the same heart. And that can only happen as we are spending time together, as we're serving together, like at the community dinner. That can only be happen as we worship together, like on Sunday morning. And then we should make the word of God and prayer an important part of our lives, individually and as a church. Jesus taught his disciples to pray and to not lose heart in Luke chapter, 9, chapter 18. We should pray and never give up. We should continue on in prayer. And then finally, when it's time to make a decision, do what the disciples did. Gather all the information. In Proverbs, it says that in the multitude of, it's wise to have a multitude of advisors, but gather all the facts and then trust God will help you make that decision. I think this is the last time, you know, you see that casting lots in the Old Testament, and then from, from here on out, they don't do that anymore. You know, this is before the Holy Spirit comes. I think now in Acts chapter 2 and onward, now we have the Holy Spirit. So you don't need to go buy a magic eight ball. You know what I mean? And shake, a, ask questions, shake God, and then pretend like that's your God and you're going to make a decision in that way. This is the last time we see this casting lots of type of thing. And I think it's because we don't need that anymore. So we can make decisions. We can trust that the Holy Spirit's going to guide us, and then we can make a decision and act on it. And then you look at these two guys, you know, there's no fighting, right? There's, there, one of those guys is going to be chosen in this prestigious position, and then one of these guys you're going to forget about. You actually forget about both guys, right? Matthias isn't talked about. And I think because it speaks to the, his, the humbleness of both of these people they put forward. A humble leader is a person who knows that, you know, if I get chosen, then I will serve humbly. And if I don't get chosen, then I will serve wherever God has me to go. And I think both these guys who have been with Jesus from the beginning, but who never had that, you know, that inner circle of being one of the 12, they still realize, hey, they're going to choose. And if it's the Lord's will, then so be it. And I will, I will serve however God wants me to serve. And I think as Christians, we should have that same kind of humble attitude when it comes to serving our Lord. Jesus told his followers to deny themselves and take up their cross and follow him. And so as we continue in, in our own Christian lives, that should be the kind of attitude that we have in prayer as we're searching God's word, being willing to serve however God calls us to serve, and be willing to fully surrender our lives in submission to him. You know, in conclusion here, as we see that God, that God is about to do something really miraculous. And for us, now we have 
hindsight's 2020, right? So we know, like I said, we know that Acts chapter 2 is pretty amazing. And they don't see it yet, but they are on the doorstep of God doing something incredible. They're on the doorstep of seeing many people come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and putting their faith in him. And they're right around the corner from God doing amazing things in their life. But they didn't know it at the time. You know, in the same way, we know, we know God is working in our midst. We don't know the future timetable, but we know that God is at work. God was about to do something miraculous in these people. He was going to send his Holy Spirit to live inside of them, to live inside of us. And so if you ever feel stuck, if you will, if you ever feel like you're at the crossroads, remember this, that God is at work. God is at work. So praise him that he is still working in your life. And I just want to leave you with the, a final statement from, from Jesus from Matthew chapter 6, verse 33 and 34. It says this, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Let's pray and ask God to help us trust him as we make decisions in our life. Will you pray with me? Oh, Lord, we surrender our lives to you. You are the one who saved us, and now all we have is Christ. We lay our lives down before you and willingly submit whatever it is to you, oh God. We trust in you. We trust that you have given us our minds to use. You've given us intellect, and you've given us your word. You've given us the Holy Spirit. You've given us brothers and sisters in prayer to pray for, one, for each other. So, oh Lord, we trust in you. Help us to keep you the center of our focus in our daily lives this week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.